Welcome back to the Major Journey Podcast. Today we are joined by special guest, Mary Jane Borden, a contributing author for the anthology Courage in Cannabis. Mary Jane has been involved in the drug policy and cannabis space now for 50 years as an advocate, activist, author, and artist. Without further ado, Mary Jane, hello and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here, Mike. Of course. Uh, so, Mary Jane, um, first off, congratulations on being a contributing author to Courage in Cannabis and, and connecting with Dr. Bridget Williams. Um, kudos on that. I think a lot of us would love to just kind of hear your story as to how you got involved in the cannabis community and the cannabis industry and sort of what that path and, and journey looked like for you. Well, when I, when I wrote my story for the uh, Courage and Cannabis, um, I, I thought, well, it's kind of a mini bio of my life. So I go back to, to day one, you know, with the name of Mary Jane. I cite a um, situation, and I think it was maybe fourth grade. Now, I, 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 I'm going to have to admit here to your audience, I'm not bilingual, so I'm sorry if I say this the wrong way, but um, we had a Spanish teacher. I didn't, fourth grade but okay fine uh and uh, she says so in the class here we're gonna we'll call everybody by their spanish name all right you know johnny you'll be one you know so and so you'll be susanna whatever you know the, the spanish names that were uh associated with that particular young person child so she goes around the room she gets everybody and she goes she comes to me and she stops and she looks at me and goes um uh um you, you'll be Mariana. All right. Even in fourth grade, I'm thinking, no, my name's Mary Jane. It should be Mariana, right? You know, I'm thinking this. I didn't say it. Right. But I'm thinking this. And so that was kind of one of the first touches that I had with something, with something odd about my name that, that this particular teacher couldn't seem to get past. And so that, that's how I started out the book. That was kind of my first touch with saying, you know, it's not that there's anything particularly wrong with my name, but it's an unusual name. It's a semi-unusual name, but my father was a Welshman and he was an ardent Welshman. And in the Welsh community, only two names, women only had two names. That was Mary and Jane. Hmm. So it was logical. My name will be Mary Jane. And so, you know, so I've continued through life with things, and, and, and I some people kind of giggled behind my back, or some people come up to me and say, "Oh, look at your name badge," because I'll see Mary Jane on it as a marijuana conference, you know. Um, but in the same respect, I I, I guess I accepted, and I really, and, and in deference to my dad, you know, that my name is Mary Jane, and I'm, gosh, I'm going to be called by my name, all right. So I think that was my first, I think, if you want to talk, first touch with, with drug policy, if you will, I didn't quite get to why the fourth grade teacher watched my name. But anyway, so I, I moved on. Um, I've done a number of different things and throughout my career here. What, what essentially inspired me was, I, I, I think, if I go back to the germinating seed, it was a book that I read in around 1970 called The Greening of America. And uh, it got a lot of play back then. You have to go back to 1970. I was in college, you know, and so I'm, I'm going to confess my age here just by saying I was in college, you know, 19, 1971 to 1975. 
And so that book really struck me. I thought, this is kind of what I think the vision of the world should be. There, there, there's different things, angles to it, kind of like kind of like the Green New Deal might be wrapped in that package, mm. okay? But there was also a component about cannabis. And cannabis moving from the space of, of which it was very illegal and verboten to be an integral part of society. And that, that made an impression on me. And, hmm. You know, I can see this. And of course, you know, you're a college student and well, you know, it's like, did you partake? Well, <laughs> did you, you know, you didn't. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, you know, you, I started it back then, but um, I, I've wound a number through number. I, I'll go just a cut, touch on a couple things. So I think were probably one of the most important parts of my background. And I think once I graduated from college, I got an MBA uh, in uh, business. And obviously, I mean, it's a business degree in finance. You know, I wanted to be a financial analyst. And so I, I, I answered a blind ad in the paper. And lo and behold, it was a pharmaceutical company that's located not far from where I live. Uh, but it was, it's a big, it's a big pharma, it's a major pharmaceutical company. And uh, they hired me to be an analyst. Well, this company, its main products were um, cancer chemotherapy drugs. Hmm. And so my job was to, you know, analyze these drugs. I, you know, there's a bunch of, there's in the pharmaceutical industry, there's a wide body of knowledge on how, how much is sold for a drug. They could count units, dollars, you know, the doctors they're prescribed to, the journals that they're in, the, uh, the sales sales materials that are produced, all kinds of data. It's a data-driven industry. And so I got to be pretty much a, a data head, and I still am today. Yeah, that training, they say the pharmaceutical industry uh, research training is some of the best in the world. And I was really graced to be able to, you know, have that kind of training. So, you know, for nine years, for about, what was it, uh, 82 to 91, I was an analyst, senior analyst for a major pharmaceutical company. And the products, as they say, were cancer chemotherapy agents. And one thing that I did was I managed a database of about, well, something like 30,000 cancer patients and it tracked, it tracked all the things that they would take, the different agents that they were taking. Now, here, here's what kind of, kind of got to me. Because, you know, uh, when you're looking at data, you're looking at widgets. You know, with, there are more widgets here than there are there. That's really the basis of it. You know, there's, there's a, you could add, subtract widgets and you can multiply widgets, but there's still widgets. And it doesn't matter if you're counting, you know, plums or cars or cattle, you know, it's still the same kind of an analyses that go on in a marketing environment in, in a company, in a major company, particularly pharmaceutical company. And so I started looking at this data, this 30,000 patients, and I'm starting to go, wait a second, wait a second here. These are real people. You know, these are people who are, you know, they're not making it through this therapy. They're make, making it through these treatments because the idea was to say, how many of these people have, have re achieved their lifetime limit or achieved, like this achievement of, of 150 milligrams of your lifetime? Because after that, adiomycin doxorubicin becomes cardiotoxic. And so I'm thinking, my goodness, not many people are getting there. Well, two things were happening. Number one, they couldn't handle the drug. The drug is actually called the red devil. If you know anything about cancer chemotherapy, it's called the red devil because it's so highly toxic. I mean, you can't touch this stuff. If you touch it, it will rot your skin or rot your clothes. And they're injecting this into people, okay? 
got it? So I said to myself, wow, these people aren't making it through this, maybe because they're dying. So that was a profound moment. I said to myself, you know, I got to find a better way. And the company ultimately uh, lost its patent. Doc's Rubinson lost its patent, I think around 1988. And, and about three years later, as will happen with all pharmaceutical companies, the price of a drug that goes off patent will drop by about, about a third to a half within the first year. I mean, the, the, the sales volume. So the sale, you, you, you have your flagship agent go off patent, you're in trouble, essentially. Well, you leave lots half your sales, annual sales, and so they they um, they were bought out by essentially what is Pfizer now. They're part of Pfizer now. Dr. Rubison, if you look at sales, it's going to through Pfizer. Okay, mm -hmm. so I I kind of I didn't want to work there anymore, and it didn't want me anymore. So it was like the perfect part departure for both of us. And so then I was searching in kind of in that mid '90s for what I wanted to do next. And I had a young son. I wanted to be mom. I think I was the first one to be mom more than anything else. And um, I started following cannabis. And cannabis was starting to become a thing in Ohio. Now, of course, when you had, but you look at the course of history here, you go from the, the Controlled Substance Act, Substances Act of 1970. It's really what put us in where we're at right now because it put marijuana cannabis, I should say, in Schedule One, the most restrictive and the most highly constrictive uh, category for uh, drugs in this country, with, you know, as we well know, with heroin, LSD, etc. And so the Controlled Substances Act was starting to permeate through the um, Really through 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 the country, particularly cutting through place college students, for example, because they were Richard Nixon's enemies between college students and blacks. It was his goal, according to at least John Ehrlichman, to uh, cut to 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 um, um, stop them. I can't think of a better word here, um, because they were his perceived political enemies. And so by making those drugs illegal, he thought he could thwart their power. And so here I was, I was a college student. These things were beginning to impress upon people. So what happens in normal forms about 1970, 71, encountered to the, controls, the constriction of the Controlled Substance Act. And slowly but surely, that particular seed that normal planet starts germinating into a movement, I think probably moving into the 1980s, clearly into the 90s, and then, of course, you know, to what we have today. All right. So I kind of started getting interested in, the, in this space because uh, I really saw some really egregious social injustices, you know. Uh, AIDS, as an example, one of the things I did study also while I was at the pharmaceutical company and really kind of touched my heart was the driving force behind the passage of Proposition 215 in California in 1996. Okay, so that's how it, it kind of got started. And I kind of got interested because of what I knew about AIDS, not I mean, academically now, because of, because of Adria Laboratories was a company because of Adria, but also that I started to see what was happening with Proposition 215 and going forward like that. And so there's a number of things that I can, you know, points along the way there that are, were pivotal. Uh, one pivotal point I want to point out was in um, 19... Uh, 97, I think it was, um, Ohio legislature put in place 
a, um, a fr an affirmative defense. I mean, if I am um, caught with a drug, no matter what it is, it wasn't really specifying what the defense I would be. I could say that it's medically necessary for me, and you know, at least have that put into court and have the judge consider it in my um, arrest and sentence, you know, whatever. Well, the Ohio legislature decided to make a big deal of repealing what was called SB2 in 1997, and that sparked a big protest big wide ranging protest. And I was observing it from afar. And, you know, I, I saw one night and what's really struck in my brain, I, I just try, try to remember the precise date, but it was around March, I think 1997. Well, this was making the television in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I'm from. So I get all the state news from Columbus, Ohio. And um, they show them kind of just kind of dejected uh, sitting under in the rain underneath an overhang at a downtown building. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, we've got to do better. You know, this is, this is unconscionable that we would have these people protesting in the rain and coming out like that. And, 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 and rightly so, but this shouldn't have to happen. They should have to do this for their medicine, you know? Yeah. So I guess I had my millennial experience, you know, my transformation. It's a new millennium. And I transformed myself into a, a, a um, medical cannabis activist. That was kind of the spark that pushed me in that direction. And so for the next 10 years from about 19, uh, no, for about 2000, I'd say, let's say 2000 to 2010, uh, I and the groups I were working for were tried various legislative routes to get, the, get, get a bill passed in Ohio. Well, you know, I think it was, I counted out last night, there was something like six bills that we became before the legislature and only one got a hearing and that's the perfunctory, the one that's granted anyway, the, the proponent testimony hearing. And that's as far as it got in the 2000s, okay? So we decided to switch course around 2010 and we uh, started a group. We said, well, okay, we'll just, what we'll do is we'll just hang out a little shingle. We'll, you know, the internet shingle and say, hey, we're here to do ballot issues. We had an attorney on board and we had a group of us who were um, just kind of, kind of interested, including me, there was about three or four of us. Lo and behold, people start showing up. People start showing up. And so in 2013, we, we launched what we, I really think was our rocket ship. Uh, we had a, had a group come from Oberlin, Ohio, come through to us and say, hey, let, let's do this together. And uh, we launched what was called the Ohio Cannabis Rights Amendment. And um, it literally felt like a rocket ship. It really did. I, we, it, um, we had to go through this process, which I could explain if you want me to, but suffice it to say, mm -hmm. you have to get certified by the Ohio Attorney General in order to collect signatures for it, okay? So we did everything we had to do and we submitted to the Ohio Attorney General in May of uh, 2013. And we got certified at the end of May, 2013. And by the end of probably September, we had 8,000 volunteers. Wow. We were, we were five people literally sitting around a table who had an idea. And you know that that was the pent up demand. It, it wasn't. I don't know if it was the magic what we did. I think it was a magical amendment. It was written kind of poetically. It was very short, but um, it it was like the pent up demand for this. There was just all of a sudden this is you know this forty years or thirty years that preceded that. 
that uh, that with the cannabis have been suppressed patients were getting impatient you know to be treated uh, like you know, like they're 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 medically significant right. and so that and, and we we would have people i had a guy he says he, he writes an email message to me. He says, I'm sitting here on the front lines of in Afghanistan, but I really, I still support what you're doing. What can I do when I get home? Tell me what I can do. I mean, it, it was, it was unreal. I get, I get chills just even thinking and talking about that. Um, and so we were just amazingly successful that first year from nine, it was 2013 to 2014. But we lacked what we had in volunteers, what we had in passion. We collected 150,000 signatures. And in most states, that'd be enough to get you on the ballot. But this is Ohio. And Ohio's, eh, what was the sixth, seventh, eighth largest state in the country? So their, their bars are much higher. So the amount of signatures that we had to get was about 306,000 per, per statute. They do it a form about how many people vote in the government, last gubernatorial race. And so you have you're going to get the 300,000 signatures. You have to get well, you know, 600,000, so that you know when they go through it, they eliminate what they think are the invalid ones. Right. Well, obviously, we didn't get close to those benchmarks, and the I, the prime reason was we didn't have two, 20 million dollars. Literally, that we you know, you look at ballot initiative in Ohio now. And they are multi, multi, multi-million dollar propositions. I think one of the last ones that involved prescription drugs, they spent over $70 million. Because that was a pharmaceutical industry trying to defeat a ballot issue. But still to fight a $70 million war chest, you know, and we're just, we were passionate. We had, we had all the passion, passion were gold. We had all the gold, but you know, if this, that's, we all know now that 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 doesn't buy you lunch, right. you know. So we didn't have twenty million dollars, but a group came along who did have twenty million dollars, and that was called Responsible Ohio. And people who are in this space will all know what Responsible Ohio when I is when I say that these were the monopoly people. You know, they wrote their ballot language so that the ten uh, um, investors who were putting up the 20 million all got a return on investment because they got an automatic written into the constitution parcel that would be theirs to grow you know, for, for growing cannabis. They'd automatically have to have a, have a, have a, uh, you know, cultivation sites and everything, things like that. So they had $20 million. We didn't. Uh, and when, so in 2015, they indeed made it to the ballot because they had, well, $20 million and could buy, 700,000 signatures with that. And um, I can go into to some of the strange things that they did, and I think that caused them to have this to happen to them. But after spending $20 million, they lost. Wow. They lost. So it's back to the drawing board. And um, Ohio is a hot, hot spot. I mean, it really, this is a state where the industry stands to make literally billions of dollars because it's a large state. It's a, it's a diverse state, you know, um, it's a little bit, it's, it's well, it, it's a little, it's rust belt. Yes. And it needs an economic injection. Certainly, certainly, certainly. So it was prime, it's prime real estate for, um, for the cannabis industry. 
and and uh, so there was still this some some people out there actually had 20 million dollars to lose <laughs> but most of us are going what but some some of these people were wealthy enough to go forward and um try another direction and the direction they tried was and i i think they're they're largely responsible for what we call hb 523 um because they um they formed parts of they there was there were some things that happened that, that they, they they were involved with we know that they they who 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 you know i could point person here was over here but um they uh we they were able to convince the legislature remember the legislature i just talked about that you know you couldn't get a bill out of it you know <laughs> that, that they 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 declined what, six eight bills i thought i think i said well they were willing to do this uh bill called hb 523 in 2016 because lo and behold there's another ballot issue taking hold that's starting to collect signatures it looks like they're going to make the ballot and they had some of these funders i was just talking about so they were going to get their 20 million dollars and the legislatures uh strange strange things that they are they uh did they say that for the people well, they really hate the people because they hate it when the people come in and, and try to make law on their own. And that's essentially what we're doing. We're going around the legislature saying we're going to write the law and you're not. And they don't like that. <laughs> and so when they feel the threat, and, it, and I think it's, it's true in other states, when they feel the threat of a ballot issue, they're much more willing to come to the table and produce law. And so with the threat of another ballot issue in 2016, they moved very quickly and passed this bill and finally made medical marijuana legal in the state of Ohio 20 years you know, after they defeated SB2 and they eliminated the medical necessity defense. Okay. And so since then, since I had kind of made that my driving force, I thought, well, I'm going to retire in 2016. Well, no, I don't. I guess I can't. And so I just continue to do this work. I, I'm right now. I'm a, I, I write a monthly column for the Columbus Free Press called Mary Jane's Guys. Kind of getting out there what I do, um, addressing a number of different topics that, that that people need to talk about. Like for example, opposition research. My most recent article is about cannabis and cancer, and, and so on and so forth. So I think I'm kind of covering in brushstrokes from how I got to where I am now. And um, I'm going to ask you if you have any more questions. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm almost speechless right now. I definitely did not, you know, anticipate that story, but kudos and, I, you know, lots of respect for being a part of that and for really sparking what happened in Ohio. Um, I, one, one question that I, that I have that I'm, I was super interested in, how did the artist element of your career kind of take place? Was that sort of cannabis inspired by any chance or did that just kind of happen on its own? See my pit, see my little be what's behind me here. Let's see if we get that. There we go. See? Yeah. That that's that's my selection of four. The the one that's the rose, I drew, I don't want to say it's got a date. I don't want to turn around and look at it. It's I want to say it's got a date on of about nineteen eighty-eight. I, I was just I was born an artist. I was one of those kids that uh, the teacher would call on in, in second grade to, to to put artwork on the chalkboard because I could draw figures realistically. I didn't draw stick figures i drew realistic human being looking figures okay 
And so I, I think I just cultivated that because that's just something that's part of me. I've been an artist all my life. And um, so when I retired <laughs> in 2016, I was going to be an artist. Well, I did, I did, did achieve a little bit of that. The, 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 that, that one picture is from 1988, but I think the rest of them that you see there were probably done in about the um, last couple of years. So I probably, but I probably produced maybe a couple hundred pictures like that. Wow. Very cool. And so with, um, I just wanted to ask that question because I was, I was really fascinated and I had a funny feeling um, that the photo, that the images behind you were, were yours. So I just wanted to ask about that, but very, very cool. Um, from, from your perspective, having worked in big pharma and then transitioning over to be, uh, very active in the cannabis community, what's something that maybe cannabis or, or being in the, the community and the industry has sort of taught you that, you know, looking back on it, no other industry would have necessarily taught you, um, such as, you know, working in big pharma. Oh, definitely big pharma was a huge influence because I have a leg up on so many people because as I said, with those analytical skills that I have, right. I mean, it, data, you know, I, it's data doesn't bother me at all. I can categorize data. I can massage data into any kind of formula. I, I mean, I'm not a statistician necessarily, but I'm pretty good with numbers. And I think that, and then my ability to write, because what I what, what I was doing for for Big Pharma was I was you know compiling the data, you know, and then I'd write reports for for management and or executive management for that matter, and I had to be able to communicate clearly, and I had to communicate you know in in, in a way that there don't there's no misspellings, there's no errors here, you know, you got to be very precise. In what you're saying and be able to back it up because you know the, the salesman or the vice president says well what about these numbers here and they're wrong you don't want to feel like you're an idiot and then you know if you're too big of an idiot you jeopardize your job so i learned how very very long about how to write write long like like write uh, for example i didn't necessarily write bills or or, or legislation like i did under mar with the marijuana area, but certainly I, when it came to write on a big long thing like a, a law or a big report, you know that I was right. I write, I've write, written a number of different reports, some of my articles, in fact. Um, it it I won't say it's ever effortless, but but it's it's something that I I, I again it's kind of like being the uh, the artist here. I, I for me it, it's it's easy to do. And so, and, and, and I enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing it. So I, I write and I draw and, and, and they all both, I think at the art, art and, and, and the, um, and the, uh, the writing that, uh, Big Pharma truly, you know, helped, helped me be able to communicate effectively. Yeah. It's amazing what can happen when you combine what you're good at and what you enjoy doing. And then when you just kind of put that all together, you have, you know, sort of, a career or just a, a path that you kind of, you know, shared with us before over the last several minutes, kind of what turned into what, what kind of came out of an idea with, like you said, five people sitting around a table, look what sort of unpacked and unfolded from that. So it, it's very, very telling. So Mary Jane, with all of that said, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to come on the show and, and share your story with listeners and uh, congratulations once again on being a contributing author with Courage and Cannabis. If folks would like to reach out and connect with you, what's a good place or good way for them to reach out to you? 
I'll probably first of all be my Gmail address is which is basically my name at Gmail, Mary Jane Borden, M-A-R-Y-J-A-N-E-B-O-R-D-E-N at Gmail. Uh, I'm on Facebook, you know, so you can look for me there, uh, friend me. Um, and then uh, I will I'll let me mention this. Uh, I'm not sure when you're actually airing this, but uh, we have a uh, panel discussion coming up here on November 19th. Uh, we're working with the Ohio State University Marich College of Law, and we're putting on a panel event that's going to feature me. I'm, I'm going to talk my little history thing here, and then but we also have the the individual who is running the there's there's a, a ballot initiative which is called an initiated statute. It's a little different than constitutional amendments, but it's initiated statute. He's the individual that's uh, heading that up. Uh, there's another uh, individual, Casey Weinstein, who is um, a representative who just introduced a uh, medical marijuana bill into the state of Ohio, not medical marijuana, adult use marijuana bill into the state of Ohio, the Ohio legislature, Ohio House. And then Shalene Title, who is a, uh, I think she's a fellow with the Ohio State University. So it's going to be a really wonderful panel to discuss, you know, what's next for Ohio, it's called Cannabis Crossroads, what's next for Ohio reform. And it's going to be a really interesting panel because I think what we want to do, we want to end up, I think, at least my philosophy would be, you know, this is a plant, people. This is, you know, I, I've seen what drugs do. I saw Adrian Meissen, you know, sitting on my boss's desk, eating the, eating the, eating the, uh, the desk, the, the surface, you know, that's how toxic it is. We're talking about cannabis, which is a plant, you know, and in the words of, um, was it Francis Young, it says it's the safest uh, uh, natural substance known to man, you know, so why are we putting this in this box that's, you know, unreachable, even by the most talented researcher, we need to solve this problem, and I think that uh, um, we, we, we need to be able to trust that adults can safely use the safest product on the planet safely. And I, I, I think that's why we need to have the, the, the adult use. And it's kind of the last stepping stone, I think, to opening up um, cannabis as a medicine, both because they'll be able to encompass people who just don't either have the time, willingness, or the exact condition to participate in a program, you know, a, a, a statewide program. Um, but they'll cover that. And I think the other thing I think is really important is as we're looking at climate change, and we're looking at the transformation of the planet, this plant can be transformational. Um, it can be used as food, it can be used as clothing, it can be used to, as buildings, and it can also help us in our own internal systems because the internal endocannabinoid system, we, we're basically beings that run on cannabis like chemicals. Right. So why are we keeping this off in a box where nobody can touch it? You know, let, let's see if we can heal the planet and heal the people while we're at it. Very, very, very well said. And this will definitely air before then. And so we'll get the word out. And um, good luck at that panel, too. I'm sure there's going to be a lot that gets accomplished. And so, Mary Jane, once again, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the, in the very near future. Well, for, feel, feel free to call on me again. I'm happy to keep you updated. Great. Thank you so much. And for everybody tuning in, thank you for joining us today. We will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachix Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. 
If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.